This is R.K. Castillo again, and I am here today with Vernon Bird, who is over in Kona, Hawaii. And when I first got started in aquaponics, I kept on hearing about what they're doing over over on Kona and this um, this food machine uh, idea. And so I contacted Vernon to see if he'd be willing to do an interview. I appreciate you taking the call and talking with me today. Sure, glad to. Hey, um, will you mind tell me how, how did you get started doing aquaponics even in the first place? Um, the uh, campus here at uh, University of the Nations had a uh, benefactor who um, actually started the food machine idea, uh, which is aquaponics, that uh, with a uh, with a device that would increase. Uh, oxygen, dissolved oxygen in the water. And in the process of doing that, I think they discovered, the company discovered it, that the device had a bunch of other uh, value, including potentially some biomedical uh, applications. So they, uh, they, took, they took that in a different direction uh, to, to begin to look at that. Um, and, uh, and they had built this unit to actually test that device. On the campus, they had uh, they had done that. So it it was built, I think, in uh, 2007, and uh, initially, or that's when the construction took place. And uh, the campus began to to uh, benefit from it. We were growing lettuce and uh, leaf onions primarily for the to use in the kitchen on the campus. I came on staff in uh, in 2011, and uh, my background's in biology. Um, retired from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with a career in um, wildlife biology, and so this is a not exactly a direct um, application of my experience, but I understand some of the science behind it and got real interested in it. From the standpoint, from our standpoint, not just for growing some food for the campus, but the initial idea was that it may have some application to our bases elsewhere in the world. University of Nations has. I think 1,200 teaching locations in most countries. I mean, we're in a lot of countries in the world. It's a global thing. And so the idea was to develop a prototype here that could be expanded that way and then multiplied to the regions to help folks, you know, with food issues. And so that was that's the interest I've had, and I've enjoyed learning about the science of it, the uh, ways to ways to scale it down. Uh, we have a we have four. Uh, 40 foot grow beds, four by 40, actually four by about 44, and uh, and so we grow quite a bit of lettuce and onions uh, here, and that's a sort of more of a commercial scale unit. But our target for missions is is more family, small community scale in developing countries primarily. So this model might not be the best one to start with. So we've learned from others in Hawaii and elsewhere. Um, to use small to to build prototypes of smaller units, even those that well, our big units are called deep trough systems, and they they're just water columns uh, continuously recirculating water from the fish tank through the grow beds. Uh, 
that a media bed system uses gravel instead of uh, a water column and then uh, ebb and flows the fish water through that gravel. And uh, and it it works well at smaller scales because that gravel offers enough surface area for the nitrifying bacteria, which makes the whole system work, to have enough surface area to actually produce, to do its function. It takes, in a deep trough system, a bigger area because it's actually the rafts themselves and walls that are the habitat for the bacteria. So it takes, the surface area is relatively a lot smaller in the big raft system than in a media bed system. So that's been our interest, is, and we continue to try to develop and understand mechanisms that uh, work in different scale and different types of systems so that we can train our missionaries in, uh, you know, with a toolbox of different tools so they can it can be applied appropriately wherever they find themselves. That's kind of the, the notion for us. So the, uh, the the food machine idea is basically a... Uh... Uh, either a production, food production for, you know, like a, a small family or maybe a village or something uh, in, the, in that area? Well, the initial food machine model, and I think it still is, there is now still a food machine foundation out of Tacoma, Washington, that uh, continues to carry on that uh, food machine is just a, it's kind of a name for this, for the uh, the aquaponics unit that they built here and they built one in Tacoma, Washington as well, with this idea of expanding to bases. So it's aquaponic, but it's, uh, and um, it is, uh, has a foundation that is building these, these uh, types of units in various places. Uh, and so it still exists as sort of a, uh, a, in, a non-government organization, the Food Machine Foundation. But, um, and we call ours a food machine still because they built that. And, uh, but it's, it is in every way aquaponics, so right. so it isn't confusing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, you kind of came in with a, a biology background, so you you knew a little bit about that. But what was kind of a, a you know the biggest mistake you made when you very first got started? Uh, we made a lot of them. Let's see if I can think of some that we can highlight here. Um, I I think um, it's 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 perhaps easy to to believe um, that the systems, the bigger systems like this particularly, that they sort of run themselves, that once you have the uh, the water chemistry balanced up and the, the ratio of plant roots in the system to fish in the fish tank balanced up, that, you know, basically you feed the fish and harvest the plants and plant them appropriately and that's it. But... Um, it is more tricky than that. Uh, anytime you have living things in a system, obviously, is as much art as science involved. And so we uh, we probably underestimated um, the amount of uh, care that a system needs to keep it operating um, at its at its uh, you know optimum capacity. So, for instance, if you, uh, I mean, we we uh, as an example. We, we understood that that the the roots are the roots are basically taking the nitrates out of the wa- the nitrates from the water, and uh, that cleans the water that goes back into the fish tank. But it needs to be balanced up, so we decided to change out an experimental bed and put it all into lettuce and onions just to maximize production of the campus. We've been trying a lot of other things just to see what grew well. And we took them all out at once, and that caused a nitrite spike, which is the version of ammonia that is toxic to fish in our fish tank. And and uh, 
killed a few fish. And, of course, it was totally self-inflicted. Immediately we realized we had done, but we didn't think about it ahead of time. So that was right. – yeah, we caught it quickly and and got uh, got it – we changed out some water in the fish tank, reduced the toxicity, and didn't lose any more fish. But, but it could have been – I mean, we easily could have lost a lot more. So that's the kind of thing, just inadvertent, even though you kind of understand it, just don't think about it when you do – when you take an action that affects the system. So it's basically a little – ecosystem that needs to stay balanced up in an ideal situation when you harvest plants you should harvest fish so that essentially that ratio stays uh stays balanced obviously you wouldn't do that real time if you harvest every week but maybe every month to keep the amount of nutrients that's going into the system balanced up with the amount that the plants are using right and um and with you guys you guys are doing about 500 heads of lettuce a week, is that right? In our peak, we yeah, when we're optimized up, we it's probably closer to 400, but that's about right. We've had 500 weeks. Um, it Obviously, uh, you get some variation, seasonal variation. Um, it we're at a we're at a we're at a uh, climate zone where in summer it's almost at the upper end of temperature for for lettuce where we are. Mm. So the growth rates, even though you'd think, is they basically have to harvest earlier to keep it from bolting. So, uh, so we don't get quite the the same growth rate, and we change varieties out. But we're probably anywhere from oh 300 to 500 would be a, a range that we would have seasonally and just the phase of operation we're in. Right, and and you guys are taking that lettuce to feed the uh, you got you got about 500 people over there at the UFN Kona campus, right? No, on a, well, the low summer quarters are probably, oh, maybe 600, but in our the other three quarters, we'll, we'll feed about 1,200 people a day. Wow. And so that's kind of supplementing the... It supplements, yeah, it supplements the, uh, we, we, we do a lot of salads um, at the campus, and uh, so we, all of the production goes into that, uh, into the campus uh, uh, food line. And uh, we know what our production is now, so if we if we wanted to do it, uh, we could expand our system to meet a, you know a lot of that need. Um, we have a this, we have a number of objectives. One, of course, is to is to learn about the systems and train and teach. Um, and so, really, providing food for the campus hasn't been the primary objective. But if we decided right. that was the case, we could do that. We we would we would just need to essentially duplicate our system that we have now. And turn it all into lettuce, and, and uh, then we could provide what we use. But um, right now, we're not providing at all. We we supplement it basically. We try to grow varieties that are expensive, and uh, and it colors up the salad things that the chef, the the guy that runs the kitchen would like to have. But uh, and leaf onions, uh, we they grow great in our system. So, um, and that's another thing to think about if if a person wanted to. Um, in your case, where you want to, or one of the objectives might be to give people an opportunity for small business, then obviously figuring out what that you know is a good uh, a good thing to to hit the market with, and then seeing what would grow well. Essentially, the deep trough system grows leafy green stuff that grows up well, and uh, not so much root things. And the uh, but the media bed you can grow root stuff in as well, you know, because it's got a substrate that would hold it. Right. So kind of the flip side of the big mistake question, you know, what what do you think 
is the number one lesson that you've, you know, you've learned or that you would teach someone to really make their, you know, their aquaponic system successful, big or, or small? Yeah, I think, well, I think I'd start small if I, you know, was, was getting into it initially. Uh, and you can always scale up. Uh, and it's and a lot of uh, people are beginning for home use or beginning to combine uh, a, um, a media bed system, maybe you know four by eight feet or something like that, uh, and then a and then a, a small wrap system with it, so that uh, um, you basically are growing leafy greens quickly, you know, well in the raft, and maybe growing some other things in the media bed, so you get some diversity. If it was a for your family, you know, and you wanted to grow. A number of things that you would eat, uh, tomatoes, maybe some beets, you know, uh, radishes, things like that that would grow in the media bed. Um, and the media bed also so could support plant, plants that are heavier like eggplant. And so yeah. you could grow those in the media bed and then grow your lettuce and onions, uh, in the, uh, in the raft for a family. And so I would definitely recommend folks start small, just personally, because it's, there's more to the operation than it appears it's a very popular technology now, and Australia, for instance, I think is the leader in the world. Lots of what might be called hobby aquaponics for families that are doing it, maybe like you've been doing, just try it, different things. Um, and it really is good to, to learn about it before you put a lot of money into a big system. And just make sure right. you, want to put, you want to put the effort in and it, you know, it suits you. Because it's, it's, there's some work involved, like any kind of going stuff, you know, so... Uh, that's that's what I'd kind of recommend, and and not assume that it you know is is just super simple. I mean it it's certainly straightforward once you learn about it, but it it takes some it takes some uh, learning and it takes uh, paying attention to keep it balanced up. Right. Now, so um, you know, I just a couple questions because I'm really interested in the the um, the application of aquaponics in say third world countries and. You know, maybe really urban areas. I got, I got invited to go to Cuba and help them set up aquaponic systems down there because they don't have any really land to farm on. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of the, you know, maybe some of the experiments that you guys have done down there, or, you know, maybe any sort of advice that you would have for, kind of like the the, the third world application of aquaponics and, you know, what do you think would be best to use and say you know, like an urban area like Cuba or maybe even something like a village like India. Right. Well, uh, people have been working on, well, first of all, if there's if uh, electricity is very intermittent, um, then that requires a different kind of design than, you know, if, if you have cheap available electricity that's pretty reliable. And the, the limiting factor on a system, the ratio essentially is fish food is the input, but the ratio of fish food uh, to plant production is, I mean, that's what drives the amount of food, the plants you can grow. Um, so if the primary objective is the plant, and it might not be, it might be that the fish are the primary objective, but if the primary, in a small system, it'll have to be plants because you can't grow enough fish to make much of a difference to your family. You know, you can grow a little bit, but you, you aren't going to have, you're not going to have high production of fish. So if it's plants, then, um, then you want to be sure that, um, you know everything matches the conditions year round conditions and um and 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 that you have you can grow enough to meet your needs so uh, the limiting factor is really the amount of oxygen in the fish tank you can mm -hmm. you 
gotta you gotta supplement oxygen in the fish tank if you have more than just a few fish, and you need more than just a few fish if you're going to grow very much plants. So so that balancing that up is the issue. So for instance, building a system on a rooftop in India, a small system for a family, that's quite doable. Maybe with just a few fish that you essentially don't have to supplement oxygen with, except letting the letting the water run back from the grow bed into the fish tank, dropping it from a distance and generating a little oxygen. But uh, and that so if you wanted to do that, um, you could do that. Scaling up from that requires, at least at this point, requires pretty reliable electricity, so you can supplement the oxygen in a fish tank and therefore have more fish and therefore have more grow bed. <laughs> Does that make right. sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. So it's that that relationship. And we've been working here on trying to understand um, how a person could do a system that was totally manual. Mm-hmm. And we're still working on that. We've built three prototypes, uh, largely as a result of input from a, a guy who is with Mission Builders International, YWAM, in Montana, Greg Griffin. And Greg designed what he calls uh, ecoponics, and and he did in fact build these on rooftops in India, and um, and and they work, but uh, but it's a series of uh, siphons that gradually moves water through the system from a bucket that you manually fill. And the question mm-hmm. is, and that still remains, is it works fine at a very small prototype, but the question is then, you know, how much can you scale that up? And uh, theoretically, you could, but again, it it will be limited by the amount of oxygen, by the number of fish you can keep because of the supplemental oxygen. And in the manual system, uh, that's what needs to be tweaked. And so we've thought about, we have ideas, but we have a working model of something that could run on really relatively low wind that was pretty reliable something like a pinwheel that you put in your system to scare away birds for 20 minutes right. until they figure it out, uh, then if you could somehow cause that to, to, to generate enough torque to even turn popsicle sticks in a small fish tank, that would, turbu- that would cause turbulence in the water, which should increase the dissolved oxygen. So having something that can, you, can, you could rely on, I mean, you could put a kid on a bicycle, but they're going to get hungrier and leave or whatever. You know, you really need it at night because that's the biggest demand. If you have algae in the system or, or surface plants, like in Hawaii, Zola or duckweed, they produce oxygen during the day, but at night there's no photosynthesis, so they use oxygen. So that mm-hmm. is going to that's going to be the critical limiting time for the fish is when they're competing with the plants for for whatever oxygen there is in the tank. So having something that would generate oxygen at night with wind or or something else, if you didn't have electricity, is I think to where the next breakthrough will come for making it available to folks that either can't afford or don't have electricity. And as you said, the application is not everywhere, for sure. I mean, Cuba might be a great example. If the soil is trashed or they don't have access to it, uh, or a rooftop or a city, um, where there's no soil, that's great application for aquaponics. Our place where water is hard to come by because it uses so much less water since you recirculate it than in-ground agriculture would. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I was um, I was watching a, a, a video of I think it was the uh, the urban farm guys, and they're taking their they're taking their the they have a swirl filter after their fish tanks, and they're taking the 
you know, the leftover fish poo, and they're using it as a um, uh, to to make biogas off of that. Then they use to run generators. And I was thinking, you know, oh, that might be some, something interesting. I agree. We just talked about that yesterday. We have a biogas, a small biogas um, system here on the campus um, that's run by pigs, and um, but it's not. It's a small one, so it doesn't have much water pressure, which is what will, I mean, it doesn't have a big water column, which would give you the pressure for the biogas. We use it to light an emu pit. I mean, that, you know, it right. doesn't need much <laughs> pressure. But our base in Samoa uses it exclusive, uses biogas exclusively for cooking. And, uh, mm. and they, they are, I think they are, they, they have, they have gotten something working with, you know, generating some, some, uh, uh using it like a turbine, you know. Um, using yeah. biogas and our turbine with it, like water. Um, and uh, we, one of our staff members just came back from teaching three weeks down there, and he, he saw that, and we just talked about it yesterday. I think that may have application, but you need a fairly big reservoir of biogas, I think, to, to, to build up to, and, 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 and a complementary, a pretty good volume of water to create enough pressure. And um, right. and that that's something to think about, but I think that might have application, and you can use it for cooking and other things as well. Right. You know, I was thinking maybe, um, you know, you would take the the biogas because it may, basically makes methane, right? Yeah. And methane. I don't know if it's possible to run a to run a a generator or any some anything like that off of methane gas. That I mean, that would be pretty interesting if it would work. I agree, and I don't know much about that either. We have a a guy on the staff who is kind of leads our alternate energy group, and he's been looking, he's been thinking about these very things. He hates to even see water run through a hose that nobody's creating energy off of. And he, so he's always thinking about, you know, how in a small scale you could generate something like that. And of course, people say, well, the obvious thing's solar, but solar doesn't work at night. And if you have to have right. a battery, then now you're getting a little bit too expensive and maybe not sustainable because one thing is let me go back to your earlier question you asked some important things that we think we understand about trying to multiply this elsewhere over the last two and a half years i think we've had units built on something like nine or ten ywam bases around the world and um and and they're a little bit different systems different places but and a few have been multiplied already to uh other missionaries, like um, uh, other ministries, there's one in Africa that is a small unit that I, uh, one of our outreach teams helped build this last uh, quarter. There's uh, out of the Los Angeles base, and so there are there there's good application. But the key for sustainability is somebody there who not only loves it, sees the value of it, is willing to last through the times when problems occur and work through them. That's the whole key. Building them is not hard. And even right. operating them when things are going right is not hard. But sustaining them can be problematic if you don't have that ownership. And so from a community development principle standpoint, probably that's the most important thing is having somebody there who, in the place where you're building that who is theirs. When you leave, they don't even know your name, basically. It's theirs. They That's yeah. the deal. And 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 you're available maybe for technical assistance questions just like you and I are talking about some stuff but that's the single most important thing the technology works it can produce food it can also produce fish at the bigger scales in quantities that are important for for a family um and 
it is it can grow food where there isn't another opportunity to grow food. But you got to do it. You got to operate it. You got to be willing to work your way through it. There is no. I don't think it'll ever probably be like a really succinct protocol. If you do this exactly like this, it will definitely work because right. there's a lot of variables. And and so that's what it takes. It takes that. And so I guess I can't overemphasize that. That's what we've learned through time. We started out just really thinking this is, you know, it looks like it could really solve a lot of issues for us and being a little more sustainable at our at our ministry locations and built, uh, you know, and, and help build them and, and the people that were there at the time, you know, we were a transitory organization, a bunch of missionaries, and, you know, people go different places, and uh, whoever's there at the time leaves, and then nobody picks it up. And it doesn't take but a few weeks, and you've got to start, you don't necessarily have to start over, but you got your, you're way out of balance, you see. And so so that's the deal. It's like a milk cow. you got to be there. You know, that's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, if... if I interviewed a guy named Phil Reasons from uh, Morningstar Fishermen uh, out in Florida, and they they do a lot of training of um, how to do aquaponics in the third world. And and he was saying the biggest mistake people make is they just think, you know, I'm just going to set this up and it's just going to make food. He said that's not true. You have to, you have to realize that aquaponics is just another way to do farming. And you know, I think. If you relate it to just a regular farm, it would be crazy for you to think that, you know, a regular farmer can just go throw seeds on the ground and then it's going to grow and nothing else has to be done. Like, you got to be out there. You got to water. You got to you got to pull weeds in a regular farm. You got to make sure everything is good every day. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of got to yeah. do the same thing with aquaponics. You just have to. It just has a different, a different set of things that you got to look at every day and make sure things are going well and feed the fish and everything. So. That's true. You don't have to weed in aquaponics either. That's another good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you build it the right height, you don't even have to bend over. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I'm getting more. From, I'm getting more happy about that all the time. So, yeah, you're right, man. Morningstar, Morningstar fishermen is they're the real deal. I mean, I read their stuff too. We're we're basically you know learning about it and and. And we want to have it expand to a number of our campuses, and then from there help people, you know, that need it. But um, but there are people that know a whole lot more about it than we do. They're, and I've, like you, looked at videos and and tried to try to find websites. And we have a base lead, uh, base leader in uh, uh, in Romania that has built built a system on his roof at their campus, and 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 we've been talking, and and uh, he really has a passion for trying to not have everybody reinvent the wheel. So he's he's worked up a draft database that would be a technical assistance website for people that are interested in, in not just aquaponics but natural farming and some other things. And so we're getting that pretty close to coming online, and, and I can let you know about that. Um, and, and so all of us, you know, independently have looked up uh, all kinds of things on aquaponics, and I took the UH online course there, Atoll course there, and uh, yeah. actually, you have an amazing resource there on Oahu. Glenn Martinez over at Olamana Farms is an amazing guy. Uh, yeah, he's got all kinds of expressions. You probably know him or know about his deal. Yeah, yeah. We uh, I was just at his farm not this this not this last week, but the weekend before, and he's he's made another invention that is just you know I call him like the mad scientist of aquaponics. Uh, so he was uh, I actually interviewed him for this podcast just. Uh, just the, the episode before this one, 
I mean, that guy, he, oh, just, yeah. he just invents stuff. Every time you go out to his farm, there's something new that he made up. Well, he he was, I, don't, I haven't met him. I just saw his videos, and he's uh, he's astounding. I mean, the guy really is amazing, and I'd love to meet him. I'd love to see his place. Uh, and there's other, there's, you know, you, we've all found the same people generally. Travis Huey, I think his name, it did barrel ponics. Uh, then, mm-hmm. and, and the guy in Australia, Wilson Leonard, who's the Ph.D. in aquaponics, um, that's, God, he's amazing. Uh, and, of course, uh, Ricosi's the guy that really started the research on this down at U- University of Virgin Islands. So there's four or five people that just stand out that are, you know, really have, have thought about this and learned about this. And so I think everybody who, you know, kind of wants to get started, this the stuff's available. People are so generous with their information. Um, but there's a lot of stuff online that is maybe not quite as realistic as it sounds, too. You've mm-hmm. probably found some of that. And guys are not being dishonest. I think they just haven't operated it long enough to understand some of the complexities. And uh, and so there's a lot of that. So I think just what they told you there at Morningstar Fisherman is what we see as well, that that it's just it, it takes a little bit more than it initially appears to really sustain, have sustainable systems. So this is I, I just had one question before before I let you go. So I was really interested. In, you said you've done you've done three different prototypes of kind of um, you know systems and that might lack electricity. You said one was like a uh, eco you call it ecoponics or something. That was yeah, ecoponics. Yeah, and then, and then, yeah, go ahead. And then the second one was like a system that you... No, we've tried three types of manual systems, um, and, and uh, Greg's the one that taught us, uh, or came here and did, us a, did a workshop, the guy that developed what he calls ecoponics, which is a manual system. But we tried to, it, we tried other, other ways to do that, and, uh, and, and we've tried different different uh, sizes, basically. All of them are pretty small. Again, trying to figure out how to manipulate the oxygen so we could increase the grow bed size. But that's basically what we've been doing. I, somebody knows the answer to this. We, <laughs> we haven't come to us yet, but we, we're yeah. really interested <laughs> in it because uh, we have a lot of people around the world that would love to, to help folks that you know really couldn't afford electricity or wouldn't have it available in places right. where... You know they don't feel empowered to grow food because they just don't have any capacity, and we just feel like that there are lots of people like that that could be that. So what what do you think is the, you know I've asked like what do you think is the lowest amount of movement that you need, you know per day? Do you need like say say you have you know that nighttime there's no sun for eight hours, you know how much do you actually need the water to be moving? Do you think in that? Eight-hour period, like one fifteen minutes an hour or something like that. It, it's it totally uh, well. It's it seems like it would be a straightforward answer, but it, there's there's some variables there. Certainly, the amount of water you have. Uh, what you want to do basically is keep the dissolved oxygen above two parts per million. That's the mm-hmm. deal. And and so if you could, I think I've actually tried to look into this. I'm not a, a water physicist. I haven't really been able I haven't been able to find the answer to this. if you perturb water a certain amount, how long does that persist? How long does mm-hmm. that persist? And if 
you know, from that from that perturbation. And that goes to your question, how often do you have to perturb it to, to keep your oxygen, dissolved oxygen up? And, uh, and here's one why it's, a, it's not a straightforward answer. One of the reasons is it depends on what's, what's using that oxygen in your system. So if you, mm-hmm. have, if you have a system that, you know, has a certain number of fish, that's going to need perturbing more often than one, everything else being equal that has less fish. You see what I mean? So it's there's so there's several variables that make that a more complicated answer than you'd expect it to be. So, bottom line is, I think for a if we can if we can discover a manual system for generating oxygen, then we can start to test some of these other variables like fish loading. So, mm-hmm. uh, if we could just do grams of fish uh, with a certain rate of perturbation and see that we're keeping it at a safe level, then then we could at least say, okay, here's a standard that can be used. And and so we don't have the answers to that, but that is the body of research that we're really starting to look into right now. That's so it seems like the thing that actually needs to be done, the only moving part that I could really think of is the pump, right? Either pumping from from maybe a sump tank back to your fish tank or pumping from your fish tank to your grow bed, like, so is is that what you're trying to figure out manually and how to move the water through a pump? You know, you could do that manually. It's it's uh, and you could and in a media bed system, depending on its size, uh, many people only circulate water maybe 15 minutes every two hours with a timer on a media bed system. So the plants can handle it. I mean, they need oxygen and they need fish water for nutrients, but it's the it's the generation of oxygen in the fish tank that's I think is the limiting factor here, and, and it's mm-hmm. not just the fish that need it; the microbes need it, and the plants need it too. But that's the deal. So you wouldn't have to circulate the water at night, but you would have to generate oxygen. Oxygen. Oh yeah, that is that is that is huge. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wilbur, I, I uh, we kind of come up on our time. You know, I really appreciate you you talking with me today and helping out the people who listen to this podcast. You know, if there was a way for people to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, I'm uh I'm at the University of the Nations in Kona and uh we have a we have a group a small group here that are, you know, doing this this work. Uh they I could be contacted at uh uh at the uh in fact, let me let me text you the uh, website address because all I have to do is click on it. So I want to make sure I get it right. We have one for gotcha. aquaponics, and uh, several of us are checking it all regularly. So I, instead of trying to quote it to you off the top, let me text that to you so I'll get it right. Sure. And if, and if you're listening, I will add the the website address below this. this Does that sound uh, this good? Audio on the website. That would be perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, well thank I'll, you, Vernon. I really appreciate it. Up, I'll look it up and let you know, okay? Perfect. And I, pre- I appreciate you talking with me, and I hope to fly over there one day and meet you in person and see what you guys are doing. Come on over. We'd love to have you come over, and I just wish you the best. Father bless you. That's fantastic what you're doing there. Oh, I thank you. All right. You have a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review or go to www.aquaponicsforeveryone.com or like us at facebook.com slash aquaponicsforeveryone.